Hey everyone, it's your favorite host and health counselor. It's Cecily. Hello. And today is going to be the season finale of the mini series My COVID Vaccine. It has been a great couple of months. Um, I know I've been a little inconsistent about the everyday thing and I tried to update it as much as I could, but um, I really hope that it helped you and kind of like helped. Um, destigmatize the vaccine and my experience was really helpful for you especially as we followed the news and followed this pandemic so today as the season finale i'm going to be interviewing dr tracy and ironically i found her on tiktok <laughs> and that is her only social media platform but she quickly got a really good really big following um and she has a phd in immunology and microbiology and she's a recently retired professor um but she's just this like super knowledgeable fountain of knowledge and i am so honored to be able to have interviewed her and just had a conversation um but i'm hoping that this is going to be a really good wrap up to answer some solid questions um about the virus and the vaccine and you know kind of like you know i thought it would be a good way to end this series if you'd like to find dr tracy you can email her at sci with tracy or you can um, find her on tiktok at sci with tracy and i'm going to put that um the the at in the description so you can easily just like copy and paste her you can find her um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I hope you learned something. I learned things. And um, let's get right to it, shall we? Well, first, thank you so, so much for taking time. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know that. And I'm happy to answer your questions. And if I don't know something, I am probably going to be the first one to admit that I don't know it. So we'll, we'll figure it out together. I'm Tracy and I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology. And I started on TikTok in November because there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And when I saw the comments that I was getting, I realized that there was just a fundamental misunderstanding about how biology works and how viruses infect you, how the immune system responds to those viruses and what it means to get a vaccine. So I thought I would kind of go on a crusade, I guess, to uh, inform people about vaccinology, basic biology, really. And it has been a very interesting ride, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've, uh, you've gained quite the following on TikTok uh, in, in a few months. And um, I mean, everyone, especially in the comments, I think everyone really, really appreciates uh, this really solid, clear, concise content that um, helps mitigate some of the confusion. Um, I know for me personally, it's been really helpful and, and really comforting just like getting all of this information. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is nice because it is really nice to just hear someone say, hey, like, this is like actual factual information and not, you know, iffy information that may or may not be true. And like, here's what is confirmed and here's what's not confirmed. And um, yeah. Yeah. It's been, well, it's been I, really helpful. I think part of, I think there's two reasons why I gained a following at all. I think one of them is that um, it's kind of like your you know, grandma giving you like, 
grandmotherly <laughs> advice. It sounds very much <laughs> like it's going to be okay. Just relax. It'll be fine. And I think the second thing is that I don't have a specific agenda. I don't need people to get the vaccine or to believe in the vaccine or anything like that. I, d- I think that people's um, fear and hesitancy is normal and founded. And my job as I see it is to provide enough information so that if you decide not to take the vaccine, it's because you have made an informed decision, not because you've made a decision out of fear. And so that I think helps people because I I recognize when people have an agenda to be pro-vaccine. I mean, I'm pro-vaccine in the sense that I think it is the, the, the safest clearest, fastest, most effective way for us to get out of the pandemic. But I also recognize how frightening it can be when you don't fully understand how your body operates or how vaccines are made. And, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation and a lot of it's scary. And so I think, like I said, I think my whatever following I've been able to sort of amass, it's been primarily because the, the message is not you must, it is well, you're smart enough to make a decision. Here's the information you need to make that decision. And I think people really appreciate that approach, you know, um, just kind of like, here's here's all of this knowledge. I think people feel more confident making decisions. I think it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, if you tell me to do it, I'll, I'll be more hesitant to do it rather than like, here's your options, here's the information. I trust you to make a good decision. Like people just generally feel more confident if they feel empowered and people feel empowered through knowledge a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think also what it's doing is it's kind of mitigating a lot of that fear too. Like you were saying, Um, it is a scary time and this past year has been extremely traumatic and being able to just like hold on to something like, solid information I think is really grounding. Mm -hmm. First, I wanted to talk about a variant. What is a variant? Why should people be aware of them? I know there's been a lot of talk between strains and variants and um, I was hoping you could kind of clear up like what is a variant? Yeah, I think that's a really reasonable question. And Unfortunately, it's it's that strain and variant and species and all of these terms get thrown around by biologists and journalists and lay people. And so nobody really knows what any of them mean. But in this context, for this particular organism, for this virus, it's not an organism, but for this virus, a variant is um, a mutation in the known viral sequence. So the original viral sequence the genome was was published essentially was put online in I think late December early January by a Chinese scientist. That would be considered kind of the original virus, the the OG, if you will. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry that I use that reference completely out of context, but it's it's one way of, it's one way of of recognizing that there is what we consider a reference organism or a reference virus in this case. And that's the, that's the one that came out at last December. And because viruses will change and mutate and mutate is a really strong and usually negative, negatively con- uh, connoted word, but it is more of a um, 
change as they replicate. So mm -hmm. as viruses replicate, they will incur mut mutations, mistakes, changes. And we really, we would call all of them variants because they are different from the original, but we only really get concerned about them when they have slightly different um, survival strategies or techniques, or sometimes just they're just more fit than the rest of the variants. So for example, um, we can, the, if the virus incurred a mutation or a change and it didn't impact how that virus replicated or that it wasn't more successful than any of its other friends, then it would just sort of be in the population. And if you think about a population like humans, for example, we are mm. we are very very different from one another. Those are variants. We're each a variant of each other, and somehow we don't have an original that we can go back to. But we have essentially all of these changes within our genome that makes us slightly different than any of the other people on the planet. If we're put in a right. situation in which we are more successful at replicating and having children then more of our genetic material will be passed on. And so over time, you would see more of that, the kind of human that we had, right? Or that we were. And the same is true with viruses. Over time, a more successful virus will just take over a larger proportion of the population. Mm. So the variants that we've seen, the UK variant, the Brazilian the variant, the California, New York, I mean, all of the different variants, the only reason we see them is because they're slightly more successful than all of the other viruses, viral sequences, vi viral mm -hmm. variants that are out in the population. And the strains are usually, that's a term usually, I would say, relegated to influenza because those are actually mm -hmm. different strains. And that's, they are very, very different from each other mm -hmm. and they don't mutate, um, they mutate the same way that coronavirus mutates, but in addition, they mutate in a slightly different way that makes them different every year, which is a different problem for a different day. But in this sense, we the best term is variant because they are just, they're all still SARS-CoV-2. They just have a slight mm -hmm. reproductive advantage over the other variants that are out there. So everybody's a variant. You're a variant, hmm. I'm a variant. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never really thought about, I guess, humans as, as variants, but like, it makes sense. Because <laughs> like, like thinking about, okay, like how are, how are genes passed on? And, you know, like, how, how are, how is genetic material transferred? And it's like that, never really thought of us as variants, but it, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's it, wow. what, what is interesting to me is, is I think about sort of the evolution of humans. Um, let's mm -hmm. just pick a trait. Let's say that the trait for being tall, that's, you know, it has a lot of genetic variation in it, but let's just pick tall. And let's say you put a lot of tall people on an island well, eventually, mm -hmm. though, you're just going to get taller and taller people. They're all going to be tall. They're going to be, they're going to take over that population eventually if and only if being tall gives them some selective advantage. 
if they were put mm. on an island in which being short was the selective advantage, then eventually that population would get shorter and shorter and shorter because the people who were mm. short would have a selective advantage over the people who were tall. So they would reproduce more rapidly and they would eventually take, you know, a larger proportion of the population would have the trait of short. So in a way of thinking about all of us being variants, just imagine that all the variants of virus that are out there, the ones that are more successful are the ones that can outcompete everyone else. And so they become a higher proportion in the population. That's all. Hmm. I was, I, so I was, um, I was reading, I was, okay, back up. So I was looking into like, I guess, the evolution of humans, mm-hmm. right? And um, obviously, like everyone knows that um, the closer you get to the equator, the darker the skin because of melanin, like, you know, just it genetically, it makes sense. Um, but I read somewhere and you, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but something about tall people is that um, like genetically, and I guess like this Darwinism type concept where taller people, it's like more surface area. So they release more heat easily and then like people who are shorter tend to like retain more fat and heat and they tend to be more north or is that like not is that like not a thing it is a thing and it's um as the human population had migrated out of the warmer climates and into more northern climates particularly through siberia and um uh mostly i think siberia is the easiest place to think about because it's cold (laughs) and Mm -hmm. And these are individuals that got shorter and shorter and thicker with shorter limbs because limbs are, 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 you know, prone to being, to losing heat. So these are people who are more compact. They are able to put more fat Mm -hmm. on. And so they, uh, and I, I believe, although I, I would have to check this to be sure, but there is this, if I remember correctly, it's also, why they tend to store fat more readily, which could be a problem with diabetes. So there might be a link there, mm. but this these individuals have a selective advantage to be able to survive more robustly in that climate. Doesn't mean that people who are tall and gangly don't get, you know, aren't born into that population or don't, you know, can't survive. Right. It's just that the selective advantage is for those people who can continue to reproduce with, you know, with in that cold climate. So yes, you, what you heard or read is, is correct to some extent. Hmm. Interesting. The more you learn. <laughs> the next thing that I wanted to um, touch on is something that you definitely readily talk about Um in a lot of your TikToks and your channel is the chain of infection. And I think the chain of infection is really fascinating because it's, it, I mean, I think you kind of phrase it as like how public health officials like advertise and are approaching um, a lot of the, the media push and like dissemination of information Um kind of like the process behind it. Uh, so I, I definitely wanted to talk about the chain of infection because I don't think a lot of people know about it, but it's actually pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's interesting to me because I think of it as such an ingrained part of my knowledge that 
I was kind of shocked that people didn't understand that. But of course I went, to, I was trained. <laughs> so there's, there's this thing before I get into that, there's this thing called expert blindness. And it's one of the things that, that professors and teachers and frankly, everyone should be fighting all the time, which is because you are an expert in something, you tend to be blind to what you didn't know before you became an expert. So something like chain of infection was one of those moments where I said, oh, well, why would anybody know this except that people who study it? <laughs> so anyway, chain of infection is one of these concepts, one of these ideas in public health and infectious disease that, that basically you can follow the entire life cycle of some sort of an infection and you can prevent transmission if you can break the chain of infection. So there are these rings that the way to visualize it is just, you know, sort of links in a chain and they're all linked together in a circle. And one of them is of course the infectious agent. So that's the first thing. And if you can control the infectious mm -hmm. agent, kill it, <laughs> uh, burn it, whatever, then you right. break the chain at that level, right? At that point. The second part mm -hmm. is the reservoir. And this is where the, um, where the infectious agent normally hangs out or lives. So for the coronavirus, the reservoir is not just humans. It's also bats and dogs and cats and every sort of animal has uh, the potential to carry coronavirus. This particular coronavirus seems to be mm -hmm. bat humans. Apparently it has infected minks and large cats. So there's a number of other animals that could serve as a reservoir mm -hmm. for SARS-CoV-2, which means that in order to get rid of the reservoir, you would have to somehow get rid of the, the virus in that reservoir, which means for us, we would have to get rid of it in us, mm -hmm or we would have to get rid of it. And we would have to get rid of it in all of these other animals that could also harbor the virus, which is an impossible feat. We are not going to get rid right. of the, the reservoir of this particular virus. So that chain is not gonna be broken by public health measures. The next is a right. way that the virus gets into a person. So is it um, like, how does it get in? Right. So in this case, it would be um, the the person is, you know, like breathes in like respiratory droplets or whatever. So it has to get into the person and that person has to be a susceptible host. So can you prevent the that person from getting infected in the first place? And so that might be social distancing. It might be. Um, it might be mask wearing, it might be isolation. There's a lot of ways to try and, and prevent people from getting in, uh, sort of exposed to the virus in the first place. Um, that's a little harder when the virus is everywhere, like it is right now, there's a high prevalence rate, so, or, or high prevalence, so um, it's harder to prevent people from, from getting it. Then you have to get it out of that person. Right. So how does that happen? In this case, it's through respiratory droplets. Right. So can you prevent respiratory droplets from getting mm. out? Well, that's public health measure is putting a mask on somebody because you can't prevent people from breathing, but you can at least slow the spread by putting a mask over their face and preventing the droplets from getting out. Then how is it moved as respiratory droplets? That's in the air. That's pretty 
pretty straightforward. So can you, can you do air handling? Can you clean the air more often? Can you have ventilation? So that's another way of preventing the spread. Then you have to have a way into another person, which is inhalation, which is gets it's that same thing. Can you prevent inhalation? No, because people have to breathe. But that person has to be susceptible. <laughs> and so a susceptible host is one in which they have they don't have prior exposure to this particular virus, or they've uh, or they for whatever reason are genetically susceptible. So we get exposed to viruses all the time and most of the time we are not susceptible to those viruses because we don't have the cells, the right cells for them to infect. So most viruses just kind of pass through us right. with, with no worries whatsoever. But because this virus is novel to us right. and it can bind to our cells, almost all of us are susceptible. Not all of us, which is important, but, but many of us are susceptible to this novel virus. And the public health measure to prevent susceptibility is to vaccinate. So at many different places, there are ways for us to put in place public health measures that can break the chain of infection. And if you break it perfectly anywhere, you would break transmission and you can end an epidemic. But we can't because we're never 100%. So this is how we, how, mm -hmm. how, the, there's so many different measures to try and um, combat or break the chain of infection on in many different places to try and, and um, break transmission. So I wanted to, the part where you kind of like t briefly touched on vaccines, I definitely want to expand on vaccines because I mean, there's been there's been so much information out there. There's a lot of hesitancy. There's a lot of information, and sometimes, yeah, it gets really difficult to kind of like like weed it out. And there's this whole thing right now with AstraZeneca trying to like um, like do do more research into like the blood clots, and so a, a lot of people are very excited to get the vaccine or they're very hesitant. Um, but I think one of the main concerns that people are validly concerned about is the speed at which the vaccine was produced. Um, so what would you say to the people who think that the vaccines came out too fast and like, where can they find reliable, factual information to kind of like, like you were saying earlier, make those really good informed decisions. Yeah, I think so to speak to the speed of the vaccine development first, um, the technology of an mRNA vaccine is not new. This is this was kind of a plug and play situation. We already knew how to put mRNAs into lipid vesicles. This this is not new. So what we needed was the sequence for the mRNA. And that's pretty easy. As soon as it, as soon as the sequence came out in um, December, January of last year in 19, in 2019, 2020, um, then it was just, we knew we needed the spike protein and we knew we needed the spike protein because of all the work that had been done in 2003 and, and since on the original SARS. So we had a lot of information going in. So the, the development is almost always the place in which vaccines take a long time because we know that the virus, you know, whatever the infectious mm -hmm. agent is, we know that it's a problem, but we don't know how the immune system responds to it. 
We don't know. It's like there's lots of things we don't know in a normal situation. In this particular situation, we had an almost not identical, but we had a very similar virus back in 2003 so that we could base a lot of our information right. off of that. Then so and then we just needed the sequence and then we could plug and play into the the technology, the mRNA technology. Um, and then from there, be able to uh, start trials right away. It was very simple. So that the the idea of getting the sequence, I I would guess based on my knowledge of bench work, that once they had the sequence, that they probably could have been making vaccine particles for testing within two to four weeks after having that. So that's pretty quick. But so they go into animal trials. They they've already set up what those trials look like. They started, they started to enroll people. I think they started to enroll people into the clinical trials as early as April. So they, because they'd already, like they knew all of these things were, were going through the process. So the speed with which this happened, it, it happened quickly for a couple of reasons. One, we had a lot of information going into the, into the development. And two, Everybody was keen on getting this vaccine. So there was a lot of money pouring into these big pharma companies or um, even small ones to say, we'll buy whatever doses. So there was no financial risk for these uh, companies. And normally what happens is that a company will do a preliminary sort of in the, in the lab kind of experiment to say, yes, we think this will work. Then they do it in an animal model and they say, yes, we think it'll work. Then they ask the FDA if they can try it in humans for safety and they do a very small, you know, let's make sure that this doesn't hurt anybody. And they, so they do a small safety test and then they go back to the FDA and say, okay, now we're ready to do our phase two, phase three clinical trials. And the FDA says, okay. And that's usually when they start recruiting for phase three. So all of those pieces would normally take time. Mm -hmm. And they usually don't start recruiting and start developing and start manufacturing until after they've gone, they've gotten approval. What these companies were able to do because they had the money, they already knew they were going to be selling vaccines. So they didn't have to like make a cost benefit analysis at every step to say, okay, how many doses are we going to sell? Is this really worth it? So they already knew it was worth the energy that they could put into it. They were recruiting for phase three clinical trials well before the summer. So even before, so when FDA finally said, okay, your safety trials look good. The data looks good. Now you can start phase two, phase three. They already had everybody enrolled. They'd already had everybody with informed consent. They could start giving them vaccine right then. The other thing that's important to note here is that vaccine trials as per the FDA don't have to be longer than two months in order to say the vaccine is safe and effective because all of the safety issues in a vaccine Mm. are going to be seen within hours, usually within an hour is the most severe reactions. And most likely within Mm -hmm. even the more sort of um, later term side effects that could have happened, like say, Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is very specifically linked to flu and flu vaccine, even that takes only a week or two, three weeks maybe to develop. So by the end of eight weeks, Mm -hmm. they're pretty clear that 
the they know what the vaccine's done. The vac the immune system has already kicked in because it only takes two weeks to do that. They've already given the second dose. I mean, there's so much can happen in a vaccine trial in that very, very short period of time. So they could get through a number of trials if they wanted to get eight week shots because that's what the FDA requires. So in a real way, this is, you know, this has marched along quickly, not because the trials have not been doing what they were supposed to do, but instead of being sequential with lots of time in between, they were essentially just right on top of each other because the approval came and they were ready to go immediately. Thank you for that. That's, um, that's really helpful, really good information to know because I think there, there has been a lot of like hesitancy about um, what the process really was. Um, but I did want to ask about kind of like people's, like what would you say to folks who are scared and concerned about like long-term effects because there hasn't obviously like this <laughs> this virus came out like basically a year ago um when it was officially declared as a pandemic in the u.s or i guess it was a national emer emergency in the u.s about a year ago um and people are just you know they're very concerned about long-term effects so what would you say to the folks who are just kind of hesitant and like, where can they find information to, to help them make a more informed decision with, with getting the vaccine? Yeah. I, I think, I, I think hesitancy based on long-term effects. I have a number of, of ways of thinking about long-term effects of a vaccine. Um, I, I have kind of a, a tongue in cheek way of saying it. The only long-term effect of a vaccine is immunity, but the <laughs> the the reality is that we have been working with vaccines for well actually a couple of centuries um and longer than that if you think about the chinese and smallpox but we understand how the immune system works really really well and we un in terms of how it reacts to um to infectious disease um and because we know that it's it, we're not asking the immune system to do anything strange or weird. We're just triggering it to do exactly what it's always done every time you've ever had an infectious organism in your body. And so to say something like, what's the long-term effect mm -hmm. of a vaccine, especially in this moment, would be in my mind saying, well, what's the long-term effect of having a cold? Because ultimately the immune system is doing exactly mm -hmm. the same thing. There's no fundamental physiological difference between how your immune system reacts to the vaccine as it reacts to the cold or any other virus you've ever had. So with that, recognizing that you're not changing the physiology, um, that's point one. So we have a long history of vaccines with no long-term effects in any of the vaccines that we've ever had. And then, um, and then on top of that, mm -hmm. understanding how the vaccine and the immune system respond to each other and knowing that we're not doing anything that, um, you know, that is not different from a normal infection, right? We're not making it uh, any, there's no real differences there. And I think the other, the other thing to be thinking about here in this moment is recognizing that we could identify long-term effects from having the actual virus within months. We've known about long-term effects of the virus mm -hmm. and the viral infection almost since 
March, April, May of last year. So within months, we knew that there was something really bad happening to some portion of the population. And we should also, if there was to be long-term effects, wouldn't they mirror and mimic what was happening with the virus itself? And so we're not seeing anything like that. And then the final part of this is, Mm -hmm. what do we know about how the immune system works generally and then how mRNA vaccines work specifically? So vaccines work uh, when they get into your body or even viruses. It's your immune system's job to get rid of everything, all traces, (laughs) except the memory. So it's almost like all of the bits and parts of any infectious organism, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, these infectious organisms are, are gotten rid of as much as the immune system can do that. And what's left is the memory, right? Mm-hmm. The mRNA vaccine, because of how it's built and because of how its molecules interact in the cell, the mRNA itself is really, really volatile and will disappear. It degrades very quickly. And in fact, the biggest problem with an mRNA vaccine is stabilizing the mRNA so that it doesn't degrade too quickly, that it doesn't do its job when it gets inside the cell. So they have figured out how to do that. And, but that stabilization still isn't enough to keep the mRNA around for probably longer than even a day or two. The proteins also have some level, all proteins in your body will eventually degrade. And so will the spike protein. And most likely they will be gone from your system completely within the two weeks when you make your first immune response. So I think in a, in a real way, when you think about all of the, all of the background evidence that there are no long-term effects from anything that we've ever seen before, how these are made, how the immune system responds, I am very confident that there are no long-term effects um, from this vaccine. And if it helps anybody, my uh, very, very pregnant daughter just got vaccinated two days ago and I was totally, totally, she's fine. Everybody's fine. And it was, it, it was not a moment where I didn't hesitate for a <laughs> second to think, oh my goodness, what would happen? I'm very comfortable with, because I understand the biology. I think if somebody wanted to get more information and uh, they could go, my recommendation would be to go to the FDA site where all of the vaccine trial data was was reviewed, because not only do you see the actual data that came from these companies, mm-hmm. but you also see how um, how the FDA approval board, which by the way, it's that's an interesting process, everybody should watch at least once, but um, the FDA approval board just ripped it to shreds and where they were concerned, was a problem, what they oh, wow. thought was not done well, what they should do better. And they had people on this panel are not just a bunch of yes, man, scientist people, but rather people from all over who care about vaccines, vaccine hesitant people, people who represent the vaccine injured, people who represent the anti-vaxxer sort of movement. Right. There, so all of those people still were on the panel to give their opinion about what they saw in the vaccine and what they saw in the data. And I think that that's mm-hmm. a really powerful thing to, to recognize is who are on these approval boards, why they're on there and what they have to say about these vaccines and what the scientists do to rebut those, you know, those concerns, not rebut the concerns, but to answer those concerns and rebut 
um, the conclusions that, that they might have drawn. And for those, those listening, I will be putting that link in the description. So if wherever you're listening, if it's on Spotify, if it's on Apple, if it's on Google, uh, you'll be able to find the link in the description. And I will also put it um, in the post for this episode on the ctempire.com. So you can find it there. That is a really really cool and helpful resource thank you for that um but that also reminded me like when we were when you touched on um like the way the way that mrna kind of like disintegrates and like kind of like a transport vehicle almost and using lipids could you possibly explain the difference between a vector vaccine sure and a i think vaccine? Uh, so a vector vaccine like astrazeneca and johnson and johnson use a virus we know will infect cells so one of the 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 family of viruses that they're all using are called adenoviruses a d e n o virus adenovirus and adenoviruses are everywhere. Some of them cause upper respiratory infections like colds and flu-like symptoms and stuff like that. Some of them call, cause gastrointestinal. There, We have a lot of adenoviruses that can infect humans. They've taken, uh, each one of these companies has taken an adenovirus and that's then called the vector, okay? Because instead of just, I don't know why they don't call it a virus. It's just a, it's now a vector. But it's a DNA virus, which means its genome is made out of DNA instead of RNA. And so they take the sequence from the spike protein and they convert it mentally into a DNA sequence. Then they synthesize that DNA sequence. So now you have the DNA that codes for the RNA that will eventually code for the spike protein. I hope that made sense. And they put that into mm. the genome of the adenovirus. So it's kind of a hybrid, genetically altered, engineered virus that has all of the bits mm -hmm. of the adenovirus with the exception of the bits that make it uh, replicate. So this is a non-replicating virus. It's not capable of replicating in your cells. But it's mm -hmm. also got this, this spike protein gene in it. And so the they engineer that genome, put it all back together again, make a ton of virus. So that's made in the lab and it, the, the virus is made inside cells. Um, and then the virus is isolated away. So now you have this, this virus with its kind of hybrid genome. And when you put it into us, it binds to our cells because that's all viruses that infect us have to do that dumps that genome into the cell mm -hmm. and that genome gets transcribed into RNAs and then those RNAs get translated into proteins, which all that means is it's just an extra step <laughs> that goes into that. The DNA is more stable. It takes longer for that to degrade. So it might make more messenger RNAs than the mRNA vaccine might. Um, but it, it's basically a delivery mechanism. The virus doesn't replicate, so it doesn't spread to more cells. It's just that one shot to put the DNA into our cells. Right. Um, the mRNA vaccines are just the mRNA. So it's, it's basically taken two steps out of the process and just taken the mRNA. There's nothing else there. There's no other proteins. There's no viral coat, nothing. 
It's just the mRNA mm -hmm. and it goes, the lipids uh, make it bind to the cells that are around. It doesn't have a special lock and key like the adenovirus. And then it dumps it into the cells that are nearest mm -hmm. to the injection site. It makes spike protein. The spike protein then gets put on the surface. So for the immune system sees uh, between the vector uh, vaccine and the mRNA vaccine, the immune system sees slightly different things. So the immune system in the viral vector vaccine, oh, that, say, say that three times fast. Um, the, uh, the immune <laughs> system sees the coronavirus spike protein, but it also sees adenovirus proteins that are also made because it's part of that genome. The mRNA, the immune system only sees the spike protein because that's the only information that's given to the, to the um, cell. So they're slightly different in that way. Um, the, the reason to use a viral vector instead of the mRNA uh, vaccine is primarily about storage and transportation in my mind. They, are, they behave really similarly in trials in terms of the single dose of the Johnson & Johnson looks like the first dose of Pfizer and Moderna in terms of efficacy, which looks similar to the first dose of AstraZeneca. So there's, they're very similar in how they induce an immune response. What is dissimilar in why, you know, Johnson and Johnson is a big deal is because it is more stable at warmer temperatures and it can last a lot longer out in, you know, it, there's not such a rush to get it into everybody's arms because it's a more stable thing. And the protocol is what drives only having one shot of the Johnson & Johnson, not the biology. It's perfectly reasonable to assume that if you took another shot of the Johnson & Johnson, that you would get a boost just the same way you would having two shots of the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of kind of like hesitancy because everyone's looking at like the, the efficacy rate of both of them. Um, but I'm also hearing a lot of public health officials just kind of saying like the best vaccine <laughs> is the one that's offered to well, you first. Well, I think it, I, I'm really, what I'm struggling with most with the news and I'm talking about the news that's coming out of the science uh, scientists and the companies is that these companies all made the determination on their own, what the criteria would be for severe disease and moderate disease and mild disease. So the numbers are not comparable. Mm. They're just not. So the only numbers I really care about are hospitalization, because we can count that, and death, because we can count that. That's it. Everything yeah. else beyond that is mm. there's no comparison between the vaccines. So when we look at just hospitalizations and death, all of the vaccines are nearly 100% effective. So in that way, I'm, I'm, that's, where, that's how I compare the vaccines to each other. The rest of it is a little bit in the academic weeds, so to speak. So I, and, and, you know, I, I will right. say that I, I'm not always in love with my scientific community in terms of how they choose to communicate with people. Um, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, even though I'm sending everybody to look at the FDA approval board, it's, it's dense. It's, you know, it's not for public consumption necessarily. It's for other scientists to look at. 
But because the FDA approval board is actually not made up of just scientists, they tend to be a little bit more cognizant of their audience and they tend to talk about these things a little bit more realistically and less, you know, less scientifically, you know, the, the data is there, but they don't, they spend more time trying to communicate that data. So that's why I really appreciated that. I honestly really admire your ability to kind of like, I mean, I, and I guess like it, it comes with practice being a professor, but just being able to like take all of this information that you know, and just disseminate it so effectively to a large audience um, and being so patient, answering so many questions, sometimes over, sometimes and, over and over again. <laughs> but um, <laughs> definitely. Um, oh, but there is there is uh, a TikTok that you posted today. Oh my gosh, I'm forgetting It was question. about vaccines and variants. I just watched this. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was wondering if you could. Sure. Um, the question was, why is it that the vaccines are probably better at um, protecting against the variants than would the natural infection? Um, <laughs> and, and the short answer, right. yes. which is not short at all, is that all of our immune responses are different, which means there are some people who, when they get the natural infection, simply won't make antibodies that are capable of recognizing the variants. They're good against the natural, the OG, right? The regular, the original virus, but not necessarily against the variant. And there are other people who get the COVID, uh, who get COVID and make a beautiful response to um, the, to the virus and make antibodies that will protect against the variant. And we can't tell ahead of time who those people are, and we can't tell just by looking at their uh, antibodies right away, whether they're gonna be, um, because we don't know which variants they were exposed to in the beginning. Remember, we all didn't get the original virus. The original virus was, is long gone <laughs> in terms of like we, every single one of the people who've had COVID are pro- have probably had a slight variant. So what your immune system recognizes and makes an immune response to makes antibodies to um, is going to be slightly different. Not only is it slightly different because the viruses that we ex- are exposed to might be slightly different, but also our immune system is slightly different. And so not everybody's going to make antibodies that are capable of recognizing the variant, and we don't know what variant that will be ahead of time. Although some will, so that's just the way that is. Um, and the other thing to to note is that this virus is a little tricksy. It it has figured out a way in at least some portion of our population to not allow the immune system to make memory robust memory. So that they, we make antibodies, but those antibodies don't have any longevity. They sort of fade after three to six months. And so that's why everybody has said, well, you know, you're protected for 90 days or we, we, it looks like antibodies will stay in almost everybody's system for around 90 days. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, but in some people they disappear, which means some people can get reinfected. Um, But that means that it makes us susceptible to all viruses, including the variants, if we lose that, mm. that longevity. So there's really two parts to that question. And I think the, the 
I think the the disconnect for most people is thinking that if I make an immune response, my immune my antibodies look identical to your antibodies, and that's not true. My antibodies are going to be dictated by the cells that I have in my body in that moment, and your antibodies are going to be dictated by the cells that you have in your body in you in that moment, and they're slightly different, and that that difference could be the the difference between binding to a variant and not science science i you know and i i appreciated it one of the things that's really difficult to do on audio is you you know i'm making hand gestures here in front of my screen which is you know trying to help <laughs> you see where things are happening and that's that's harder to do <laughs> yeah but it is it is approaching like 50 minutes um which is actually a good time stamp for um this episode since I'm going to add like an introduction and then like a conclusion uh, segment. But um, yeah, I guess like last thing would just be your prediction for this virus and this pandemic going forward and then where people can find you on social media. Okay. Um, I, I, I hesitate to predict much about the pandemic or the virus, I should say. I will tell you that most viruses find some happy balance to live in a population of humans. So my my prediction is that this virus will not be as deadly in the future for a number of reasons. One, I think we're better capable of recognizing it and getting people tested and getting them into the hospital and we have better treatment options and all of that. But also in order for a virus to be really successful long-term, it has to be communicated easily. So very contagious, which is check, but also it can't really debilitate the host because if it debilitates the host, then we don't go out spreading the virus. So they viruses tend to get less deadly over time because they uh, need healthy-ish hosts in order to replicate and, and continue. So I can imagine the evolution of this virus being one in which they we will see uh, the virus continue to to be in, more infectious. But I think that the uh, mortality might ease up a bit. Um, over time. And that might take mm. 10, 15, 20 years. It might be many, many years down the road, but that's what what we've seen in the past in terms of um, these kinds of, of newly uh, acquired or newly introduced viruses. Um, and then as far as the pandemic, I am, I am hopeful that uh, President Biden has, uh, is capable of <laughs> delivering on getting vaccines to everybody in May by May. Um, I am a little mm, skeptical would be a good word in terms of watching how it's been rolled out so far. And I think um, <clears throat> it has, it has been hurried to roll out, which I'm, I'm fine with the more people that get it, the better, but I think it's less organized than it might otherwise yeah. be. And I think we are playing catch up in terms of organizing. So um, with that in mind, the idea that most of us would be vaccinated, most of us would be vaccinated sometime in May, um, I think, and I've said this before, I think we will be mostly back to normal 
in June, July. And by September, uh, Fauci has said that school children, school aged children will be vaccinated. So by the time they go back to school in the fall, uh, things should be pretty close to normal-ish. I think we we are in a you know before and after kind of moment. I think everybody remembers what it was like if they were alive during 9-11, remembers what it was like before and after. And I think everybody remembers, yeah. you know, how we, you know, what we used to do before and after any of these major sort of life events. And we're, yeah. we're approaching the aftermath of a pandemic. I think mask use is going to be um, more normalized. I think vaccine use is going to be more normalized, which I'm actually very excited about. Um, yeah. And I think, I think people's interest in science and in medicine is going to remain high as it's very clear that public health, medicine, healthcare, that these are the individuals who essentially got us out of this pandemic, not politicians, yeah. not governments, not, you know, not Q. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I have no political opinion about that. And you know, I think I think in in many ways the 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 place that we're at right now is a place that finally looks hopeful. Um, and I, I think people are talking about getting out of the pandemic and being beyond it. And I think that's really really good news because I think we were all very 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 tired of being in a space of just never ending homeness. <laughs> and, and yeah. isolation. Um, I think what will be most interesting and from a sort of a geopolitical standpoint, I'm very interested to see what the United States does once we are all vaccinated. How do we turn our um, medical miracles and our richness into the rest of the world? Where do we put our 170,000 or 170 million extra doses of vaccine that we bought already. Where does that go? Who gets it? How do we deliver it? How do we take care of the rest of the world so that the pandemic ends for everyone, not just the US and the Western countries? Yeah. Um, I think the, the pandemic will never end if we don't end it everywhere. Just the same way that we only eradicated smallpox if we eradicated it everywhere. We cannot eradicate polio unless we eradicate it everywhere. And I have to say we were almost we were almost there and the pandemic basically just shut that down. So we're gonna have to go back in, primarily in India, to go back in with vaccinations and try to get that population under control again. But um, the only way to stop something like this is to do it globally because we're a global society now. So my handle, I'm only on TikTok. I have not expanded into any long form content, uh, <laughs> primarily because I don't have time. I feel like a minute is about as much as I can do. Um, and uh, so my handle on TikTok is at Sci Time with Tracy, and that's S C I T I M E W I T H T R A C Y. Um, and yeah, I, I try to post at least once or twice a day if I can. And I do lives, which I absolutely adore. They're super fun. The lives are so much, so much so fun, fun. And they're so informative. They really are. I, and, I, you know, I have a really interesting following. These are, these are people who 
Some of them were vaccine hesitant, but now aren't. And now they're vaccine advocates and people who are other science folks, some people who are just interested, some people who just who just resonate with my content. And I, I feel like we've formed a community and a family and it's it's really, really fun to get online and just chat with everybody. I would love, love, love to be able to travel around the country and just say, hey, I'm gonna be in this town. Anybody wanna hang out? <laughs> And then it would be so much fun. I know, right? <laughs> but you know, that's that's a dream for post COVID. Well, I, you know, and, and sort of on a personal note, this um, TikTok was not something that I started. Um, it's not something that I thought of myself. I don't, I'm not on social media really ever anywhere else. I don't have any of these other things. I don't. I I got them all. I had I have Twitter accounts and I use them for school. Like I did them as part of a learning and educational space, but I never really did them as a social platform. Um, mm. And then TikTok just, I don't know, spoke to me or something. It, I got on, I got on because I wanted to giggle and every, every TikTok video I ever saw that went viral, I thought was hilarious. So I went and started <laughs> laughing and, and started recognizing and seeing how valuable um, creating content could be. Um, so I started making content on one channel and uh, got a small following, about 50,000 there, and then moved to the science channel primarily because I couldn't do both. Um, I didn't want to mix and match. I wanted to, to be a pure science channel and um, you know, was able to build a following pretty quickly. And that's astounding, the, the number of people that, that f find some relevance in my content is astounding to me. Yeah, I know that you make a huge impact in so many people's lives. I mean, so for the folks who um, may not have been in Tracy's lives, I mean, there are just, there's so, so many different people. I mean, sometimes it's people who are like, I'm a single mom of two, I'm hesitant, and now my kids are going to school, I'm just like asking very like real, honest questions. And then there's like, you know, other scientists that are like also asking um, questions and engaging that way. And people are like answering questions and giving their experiences. It's, it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, space and very interactive. And um, I do so love it. If any of you have, I do know, love it. follow Tracy because they're, they are great <laughs> lives. <laughs> and in fact, I was thinking about this is it's, it, it's time, it's time to do a live. <laughs> so I will probably do a live as soon yeah. as I get off the, off this call with you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I will be on the lookout for it. But yeah, thank you so well, much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that that you reached out to me and asked me to be a part of it. I I'm I'm honored, really, Cecily. This was lovely. And that's it, folks. That's the end of a mini series. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, again, so much for all of the support. Hit me up on social media. Come find me at the CT Empire. Ask me questions. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. So come find me. Uh, email me if you have any questions. I love all of you so, so much. Um, and thank you so much for your support of the show. And um, check out the other episodes to come. Today's theme for March is growth. And... Um, 
I interviewed people and had people on the show for both episodes. So those are really exciting. Um, And I hope you enjoy them. So thanks again. And welcome to the end of my COVID vaccine. I hope you enjoyed your stay. Take care.